You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 12. And as you do that, uh, you should feel the, uh, the theological kind of framework begin to shift as we move from Genesis 11 into Genesis 12, because uh, Genesis 12 is just a major marker point in not only the chapter of the book, but all of human history and the Bible itself. Genesis 12 is when we're introduced to the character of Abram. Abram's not as important as uh, what Abram represents. His name actually means father, and he becomes the father of many nations. Uh, but Abram represents um, uh, the, the beginning of God's active plan to redeem the world through one covenant family. Um, before this time from Genesis 1 to 11, we've outlined the themes, the meta narratives is the fancy way of saying uh, the creation, the fall, the rescue through uh, Noah and his faith to build the ark. Um, and Abram, the beginning of Abram's family and the call of Abram, which we'll look at today, is the beginning of God's plan not just to rescue people um, from from destruction, but to redeem them, to see the world redeemed through a covenant family. And so this is, this is a major marker, not only in the Bible and the chapter, but in the world. Abraham uh, is what his name will be um, turned into by way of his relationship with God and his covenant with God. Uh, represents the, the father in the Bible, uh, as it says, of many nations. And Abram is the, um, is the, 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 the seed, the, the beginning of three big religions, not only Christianity, and Judaism, but also Islam, you know, like, like Muslims would look to Abram as a, as a significant figure. And so um, what we read here in Genesis chapter 12 is very, very significant to, um, to seeing how the, the rest of God's plan to see his good world gone bad, be redeemed and made whole again, uh, really begins here. Um, I'm going to read a couple of passages to give us a little bit more of an intro of where we are and then kind of get into Genesis chapter 12. So if you go back to Genesis 11, verse 27, we kind of find the uh, on-ramp into Abram's life, an introduction to his his character, his um, story in in the Bible. So chapter 11, verse 27 says this. It says, this is the account of Terah's family, Terah being Abram's father, Terah's family line. Terah, says, became the father of three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Lot is going to be a very important character if you've done Bible reading in the book of Genesis. Lot is Abram's nephew by way of that family tree and is going to cause uh, Abram a lot of uh, struggle and sometimes strife, but also uh, help to play out the uh, sovereign grace of God's hand in Abram's life. And so Lot's going to be an important character that we'll, we'll keep an eye on as we continue on in the story. Uh, verse 28 says, While his father Haran, uh, Terah was alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur uh, is uh, known in the Bible as a very violent place, a very ungodly place, much like Assyria and Babylon and Nineveh and the places that we read about in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. Ur is um, not the most godly place, and this is where Abram's family uh, is founded. It says, in the land of his birth. And then verse 29, it says, Abram and Nahor both married, and the name uh, of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. And then verse 30, you could circle as a very important verse to uh, set us up for the rest of uh, Genesis chapter 12 and beyond. It says, verse 30, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Super critical point uh, in the story, because if you think about it, it basically just said that Terah, the kind of patriarch of of Abram, the the father of Abram, had three sons and one of them died. So really he's only down to two and one of them is having babies and the other one can't. And, and interestingly enough, as we, as we talk about God, you know, in this couple verses before Genesis 12, making his selection, you know, the kind of uh, expectation or assumption would be that if you were going to find a person to be the father of nations, and uh, theologians sometimes call, you know, this idea that, that uh, the promise of God is that there's going to be this seed of a woman that comes to step on the curse of the snake. If you're going to to entrust that to a human being and you have your, your pick of the litter, so to speak, you would probably pick the one that's able to have kids and not the one that's not. But this is not an accident. Obviously, you can see from the setup of the story that it was on purpose and that the, the, the writer of the story in Genesis wants us to know in verse 30 very clearly that Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. In fact, all of the line of Shem 
continues the pattern, if you read in Genesis 11, right before the verses that we just read this morning, repeats continually that more and more children are being multiplied according to the Genesis blessing, and it continues to say that they had sons and daughters, and they had sons and daughters, and they had sons and daughters, and sons and daughters. But then when Sarai's name is introduced, it just speaks of her barrenness. This is not a mistake. This is not an accident. Up until this point, there were five things that the humans were supposed to be doing. Their purpose, our purpose as human beings from Genesis uh, one in Genesis two to be image bearers was to fill the earth, to be fruitful, to be multiplied, to subdue it, and to rule it. There are five things that humans were supposed to do, and as Genesis one through eleven continues to roll out, we find humans' incapability to fulfill those purposes. They were not able to rule the earth. They were not able to subdue it. They were ruled by by the snake, by the temptation. They were ruled by the the sin that crouched at Cain's door. They were ruled by the world as opposed to being ruling over it. And, and in the Tower of Babel, we see that they were incapable, incompetent, impotent to be able to spread out and fill the earth. Rather, they stayed in one place and huddled vertically to try and build a tower unto their own name instead of bringing glory to the name of God. And so we see the, the humans fail to spread out. And now we find the very last thing that humans were supposed to be doing uh, to bring life and to multiply and to be image bearers in the earth. They have failed to do this. And so verse 30, we see Sarai is actually the perfect candidate for God's plan because God is not helping humans do what they should do. God is doing what humans should do in them and through them despite the fact they can't do it on their own. And and this is really going to be the the theme uh, and and. The, the tendency of all of the, the works that we're going to see take place in Abram's life. So on the screen is a picture of uh, some ruby red slippers that um, I found in the Smithsonian Museum last January 2nd, a couple weeks ago when I went with my family to the Smithsonian. In the Smithsonian, there's lots of fun stuff of American heritage, you know, you know, George Washington's, you know, outfit during the Revolutionary War, uh, cannons that were used in the Civil War, World War II planes, pieces of the 9-11 Tower, lots of stuff. Uh, n- none of the things, uh, I don't know exactly what this would point to in terms of significance, have s- such a feature and such a spotlight as the ruby red slippers that are on the third floor of the Smithsonian of the American History Museum. In, in, in that room, you'll see, uh, actually, if you go one uh, slide backwards, it's a little bit dark if we get the lights any, uh, any darker than that. There's a line behind it that says, Toto, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. You can't really see it off the side of my vertical shot of my uh, iPhone 10 there. But that's exactly, of course, what it, what it says. And, and then in the picture are one of the many pairs of the ruby red slippers that are uh, either lost or found somewhere in the United States. There were several pairs made. They were worn, obviously, by Judy Garland. They're between five and six. And, and, and so curators have spent, these pairs actually spent this museum, or our tax dollars, $356,000 to try and keep them in uh, tip-top condition. Uh, they were originally white, and they have red sequins that are sewn onto them. And the reason why it's even hard to see them in that case there is because the lights in that room are turned way, way down so they can be preserved. But but they, uh, they are cherished and adored by generations of Americans still today. And even people around the world, most people in the American uh, Museum, as it were, on January 3rd, was not from uh, America at all. There were Polish people and Chinese people and African people that were just clamored around this little thing as much as you would get around the Declaration of Independence. And there's this kind of uh, something special and significant about those slippers. They obviously represent an, an important movie, but probably more than that, they represent what's kind of the message written on the wall, which is they represent home. They represent Kansas. They represent middle America. They represent what America stands for. It was a movie that was written, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, and if you looked into any of the significance about it, it was all about, you know, the gold standard and the silver standard. Don't have to get into all that, but it was basically about a story about a girl who had uh, lost her way from home trying to get back. And so that's, that's universal. I don't care if you're Industrial Revolution or Technology or Information Revolution. We're all trying to get home, and, and whether we're a 13-year-old girl or anything else, like, there's this sense that we're not quite home yet. And, and maybe that is the nostalgia of it or the, the wishfulness of it to see those shoes and maybe get reconnected for mom's cooking and apple pie and, and whatever it is that, dim sum for me, I guess, but whatever it is that you grew up with, that feeling of trying to get back to that place of, 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 of trying to get home. Home is, as the movie kind of presents and demands, is, is more than um, just a zip code or a location. Some people say home is where the heart is. A home is where the good food is. You don't realize how American you are until you travel. Have you ever noticed this? You think, oh, I'm not an American. I'm just kind of my own person. I'm independent. Then you go out 
to some country and they're like, you want me to do what with the bathroom? What are you asking? What are we eating now? What kind of body part are we eating? And I remember in the South, I was just so upset that people say soda instead of pop. And I'm from Indiana. It took me, you know, 16 years not to say pop anymore. I was so sad that people say the bed. I don't know why we're saying the bed. I only have one bed, so I just get in bed. I don't know why people are saying getting in the bed. But it's little things like this that don't make us feel home. And it's only when we leave home that we realize that we miss home so much. Um, we need to understand that, that concept of home to understand really what's at stake for the next couple verses of Abraham. The birthplace of, of faith, the birthplace of Abraham's story, which is a template for really all of the Old Covenant stories and then eventually gives us a frame of reference for the New Testament story, the, the birthplace of faith begins in a command to leave a home. That's not by accident. That's not by mistake. Uh, Abram, who was raised in Ur with the Chaldeans, with his father, um, was not, we assume, a godly man. In fact, in Joshua, it talks about Terah was uh, a pagan worshiper. And uh, we believe, ultimately, that Terah does come to know the Lord, uh, but not at the beginning of his story. And we could assume, by way of the timeline, potentially, Abram and his father worked on the Tower of Babel. We don't know. Uh, but then also, that Terah and Abram and his family, the three sons that were listed there, were also very wealthy. They had lots of property and wives, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they had lots of good things. And so, it's not just that God was calling Abram and his family out of a bad place. He was calling them out of the place that they lived, including some of the good things that were to do about that place. The beginning of the faith journey was always about leaving home. And I think that's significant because, because really all of the faith journey is about leaving home. And, and, I, and I think there's a reason why the very first verse reads this way. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, it says, go from your country, which the table of nations begins to talk about how people have grown into clans and nations for the, for the sake of mutual protection and for, for truth and understanding uh, even uh, religion, pagan religion, or, or Judaism in the future, the, 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 um, the religion of Yahweh, the, the, the path towards um, understanding um, God and his covenant. Uh, that's, that's embedded, that's connected to country. That's connected to country. He says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. And I want you to leave your household. This is the beginning of the story. To leave home. I want you to leave your household to the land that you don't yet see. To the land that I'm going to show you. So, so, so just pause for a moment. And, and as that verse is on the screen, I, I want you to, to block out where it says Abram. And I want you to put your name in there and just, just read it for a second. So it says there in, in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord says to to you, and just assume that, that you, you know, different times I think we can discern maybe what God is saying to us or what he's stirring in us, but, but just for the sake of, of the exercise to, to empathize, to understand what the stakes of the story are, I want you to leave Greenville, never coming back. Like, I want you to leave your, your father's household. This is, this is, what, this is what, the, what the story is, is saying. This is what the word of the Lord is saying to Abram and potentially what is continually said to us at different time periods in our life. And I want you to leave your country and I want you to leave your friends and I want you to leave your family and your neighbor and your nations. I want you to leave this stuff. I want you to leave it. And, and I want you to go to the land that, that I've not shown you. I just, I picked Iraq. So here's a picture of Iraq. Let's say we're just so, we're certain. And we should be certain. We should be certain as God calls us and commands us to do different things at different points of our life, whether it be, you know, to get married or to have a family or to go on a mission trip or or to become a member of a church, or whatever it may, may have it. It's like, we want to be certain. And what if you were certain that you were called to this place, to, to Iraq, you know, where, you, you know, you're, you're now in, in, in entrenched, and you're saturated, and you're surrounded by a new culture, and a new tongue, and a new language. And some of it's beautiful, and some of it's mysterious, and some of it's really hard and rough. You know, Iraq, I've looked up some of the statistics. It's like, you know, 95% is, is Muslim, so totally new religion around you. Some of us, you know, we might thrive and become alive to something like that. Some of us, we might shut down from something like that if God called us to a place like that. There's a huge emphasis on family. And so if you were to have any sort of community or family, the family has these ties to you as far as who you're going to marry and what you believe and what's right and wrong. And, and, it, and there's a huge emphasis on, on the collective viewpoint and perspective of truth. And if you stepped outside of that truth, you would be very much extradited. You'd be very much excluded if you were to step out of that. What would it feel like if God called you somewhere new to a place that you've never been before? We can't read the story uh, and read, read Abraham's life if we don't let this, this, this testimony become a mirror to us, to our own heart. Okay, so, so hang right there. So God doesn't leave Abraham there. 
he turns the verse, and this is what he tells Abraham in, in verse uh, 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 2 and 3 in chapter 12. This is the promise, um, and I would call it the vision statement. If you look at this, this isn't a strategy meeting. If you came with a notepad of how are we going to pull this off, God? How are you going to redeem the world and make your good world turn, your bad world that's, excuse me, your good world that's turned bad, how are we going to see it redeemed? This is, this is not a, um, a strategy meeting. <laughs> this is a, a, a vision cast at, at most, you know, is, is what God gives Abraham. And so he speaks to Abraham to, to his heart, maybe even more than his head. He speaks to his to, to his spirit, and, and he says to Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation. He says this, he says, I will bless you. And he says, I will make your name great. He says, you will be, you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Hugely important scripture. If, if this is the hinge of history, I mean, this scripture encapsulates the new direction that you know, we'll, we'll be headed as the reader and, and as we observe in history and in biblical testimony, uh, the beginning of something important. I remember um, when, uh, I, I think I've shared this story before um, at City Lights, but, but many of you are new and maybe hadn't heard it. Um, when I was probably, um, I think I was about 27, I came down with a really bad um, strep throat and uh, couldn't kind of get out of it. It just kind of like lingered on and missed a lot of work and couldn't figure it out and so forth. And so ended up going to the doctor, doing a bunch of tests. And the doctor became really concerned based on some of my levels with my kidneys and the amount of kind of protein that my kidneys were not, you know, filtering through my body gave this concern that I might have some sort of a nephritis. Nephritis just means that your kidneys are not operating the right way to uh, clean the bloodstream, which I didn't even know what kidneys did. I was like, oh, I didn't even know I needed them. Did I, did, should I be taking care of them? How do I do that? More push-ups? Um, completely ignorant of what the kidneys are doing. And then found out that I needed both of them and uh, that they were not working, you know, the proper way. And so, um, bless Kyra. I mean, she's, she's a nurse and obviously a caretaker in, in her spirit anyways. And, you know, she's caring for me. But she knows, you know, the, the implications of, of a nephritis, you know, disease. If your kidneys aren't cleaning out your blood system, your blood affects everything in your body. And so, you know, in her mind, she's already calculating it, you know, when we're doing these tests that, like, potentially my life isn't going to have as much, you know, quality of health and might not be as long as, as I think. And so potentially in some of the best or worst case scenarios, my kidneys might function for another 10 years. And beyond that, I would have to find the right donor and I'd have to um, have them, you know, replaced and, and do that. And then from then do dialysis in the middle of the night. I mean, this is kind of like at 27, the thing that you're, you know, that you're getting. Intense time of, well, number one, diet. I never knew how much I loved cheese until that happened. Um, but also an intense time of just supplication and prayer and neediness and, and losing a lot of home, to be honest, a lot of the comforts of the things that I thought for sure I'd have in my future or, you know, for sure I could depend on, you know, in, in the present and, and just a lot of vulnerability, you know, and, 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 and a poverty of spirit, so to speak, if you were to use the, the Matthew concept. But um, we had worship music on every night. We were in, in just prayer a lot, um, and not just to ask God for things, but be thankful for things as well, and to honestly feel close um, to, to his spirit in, those, in that season, maybe and ever before, at least matched as ever before. I remember one night um, in the middle of the night, and, I, and I, I share this story not to say that this kind of thing uh, happens to me all the time, um, but one of, the, one of the nights in the middle of the night, um, I woke up in what I believe to be like a very significant moment of God wanting to say something to me kind of in the middle of the night. I remember like, I'm not, I don't get up in the middle. I'm a deep sleeper. I love to sleep. Amen. Uh, but uh, this, this night I, I was just wide awake. I had, I, I felt like my body felt kind of like pressure on it a little bit. I, I, I even felt a little bit of a heaviness of breathing and so forth. And all that I heard the Lord, I mean, this is me sick, right? And I don't know how long I'm going to have my kidneys for the next 10 years. And he's not talking to me about any of this. I feel like he wakes me up and Kyra's there next to me. And I feel like the word that he says to me over and over again, probably several times, is just to preach. This is the only thing I get. He just says, I want you to preach. And it wasn't an audible voice, and, uh, but it was certainly a stirring and an impression and something that stuck with me for a long, long time. I don't think I really told anybody for a long time. But, and it wasn't the kind of thing that, like, the next day somebody called me and asked me to preach somewhere. It was just something that, like, I knew was supposed to be, get carried with me, you know. It was something that, that I needed to, 
to treasure in my heart, to think about, to orient my life around and so forth. And, and that's how I connect with this story is, is that sometimes God is not talking to us in our, to our mind, but rather to our soul or to something deeper than that to say, I want you to get a taste of things you don't see. I want you to try and wrap your mind around some things, you know, with these words that you understand what a nation is, and you understand what blessing is, but it's not the kind of ways that, oh, bless you, have a great day that people say at the supermarket. It's like in heavenly language that God starts talking to Abram, you know, and he doesn't give him a strategy or how he gives him this, this word. There's just this thing that, that he tells him and, and, and he doesn't know where to go and he doesn't know what it's going to be called. He doesn't know how many people. He, doesn't, he just has this word, this, this compass that's going to drive him into and throughout the rest of the, you know, 40 whatever chapters of, of, this, of this book. And so, and so this is what I think maybe he would have heard, you know. Like God can sometimes use the natural words to help us understand the unseen because the natural is somewhat of a metaphor in many ways. Like the word father gives us a bit of a glimpse of what father would be like, but we don't really understand God as father just by looking at our dad, but we have the natural word. So he, these words have all been used, right? This is important. These words have been used in Genesis 1 through 11. So God has already given us the dictionary, at least of what these things are not. The word nation has appeared just for the first time in Genesis 10, the idea of a collective people gathered for security, clans and tribes and tongues, similar language, similar value sets. But he would have known that these nations were, were not godly, they're dysfunctional. You know, in VeggieTales, they say they slap each other with fish or whatever. But, you know, in real life, it means they're putting spears through people and, and there's spies out throughout the land and there's all sorts of dysfunction and tyranny and people are overturning. So he knows it's not that kind of a nation, but he's got to use that non-example to maybe cast vision for, like, what would God's nation be like? That's all that he has. And then he goes on to, to blessing. And, and, man, I mean, if you're a, a, a Jew in that age and era, you're thinking about the garden. You're thinking about the tree. You might be thinking about, uh, God, you know, Adam, God covering Adam or, or God putting a mark on Cain. I mean, these are all in the category of blessings, but, but blessing in the, in the Jewish sense is not rich and, and wealthy per se. Blessing includes those things, but in the, in the highest part, it, it means back to the garden again, to walk with God, to have righteousness, peace, and joy, to, to have a garden. How could this be that God, you know, barely, you know, can, can give us protection against the curse in the case of Noah. Now he's going to be a walking 24-7 garden for me and my family. I mean, it speaks to your heart. It, it, it's hard to go, it kind of transcends between the ears. And he says, I'm going to make you a name and not like the name of Babel. That's where it, what came to mind for me. Maybe like, maybe kind of like the name of Enoch, who we all had a renowned history in Genesis 5, where it says Enoch walked with God and was no more. I mean, they would have told stories around the campfire about that guy. Like, what, what kind of a name, if that was the name that his mom gave him, and that was a great name, and God's greater than his mom, then what kind of a great name would he give Abram? I mean, these are the kinds of things that would stir in, in his spirit. And he says, and says, not only that, I want you to be a blessing, a blessing for others. I talk about this a lot, and it helps me understand, but do you guys remember in like, you know, 2001 when, when uh, well, all these companies did it. It was Gmail and Facebook and Spotify. These, uh, these the media companies will come out with something and, and they'll let a select group of people um, use that app or that product or service for a short amount of time and then individually invite people. If you've experienced this before in Gmail, I wasn't the first, the first awesome. Some of you guys might have been the first class of people that were invited to Gmail, but I was kind of like second and third generation. But it's a, it's a great business strategy, I suppose, because it, it creates an ownership with the people that first uh, interact with that product, and, and, and they become the vision. Instead of words across, what if you had a Gmail that had 15 gigs for your Gmail account, it, 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 the person becomes the walking testimony, and that becomes, I think, w w what's being said. You know, it's interesting, it's not just saying that you're going to help others get to God to be blessed, it's saying that people, by proxy of knowing you, are going to be blessed. So they're, they're, they're not just going to God to get blessed, they're going to you and you're actually going to be, as Psalm 1 says, the tree that is planted by the, by the river and you're going to meditate on the law day and night, day and night, so much so that when they talk to God and interact with, excuse me, when they talk to you and interact with you, they actually in a proxy way are interacting with God. I mean, you barely by the skin of his teeth saved Noah and now you're going to use this man who has no history and no rapport or acumen to be a proxy blessing, a tree of life in the middle of a cursed world? It's just like impossible. I can't even have kids, God. Like, and you're calling me to do this. This is God's plan. This is what he's doing. He says, ultimately, I'm gonna use you to be a blessing to all people, all nations of the earth. I'm gonna bless all peoples of the earth through, through you. If this is, this is a song, the name of the song isn't like, 
you should. The name of the song is I will. Look at the beginning of every single verse. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you to be a blessing and bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will make you someone that blesses all of the nations. It's not up to Abraham. It's not even, it's not up to his, his choices. It's already decided. He's on a downhill, downhill facing slope towards grace and glory. Like, like if, if you had you know, a bowling ball and you're at the top of a, of a ski hill and you threw one to the left and one to the right, in 15 minutes, they're both gonna be at the bottom of the hill. Like, it doesn't matter. He's, he's in a setup. He's in a, a sovereign grace setup. Like, God will, God is, God, God will make this come to pass. And as we watch the story unfold, a lot of mini episodes of Abram's story and then Jacob's and Joseph's story of lots of ways that these guys wanna turn left and wanna turn right and not go towards towards God's grace, somehow God gets, gets the upper hand. Somehow his sovereignty, somehow his grace overcomes Abraham's failure. So when we think about the, the first picture of, of going to Iraq, <laughs> um, if, if the instance of looking at that picture just brings up a gut check, like how much do I love God? Do I love him enough to go to another country? We've kind of missed the full picture. If all we've done when we, when we look at the presumption or the idea of like, man, God likes me on my toes, so he's going to like call me out somewhere uncomfortable, and the last thing I want to be is a missionary, so he's definitely going to call me to be a missionary. I don't know if we fall into the heritage of the way that God calls people out of situations and into the next situation. Because if you look at it, Genesis 12, 1 through 2 is followed directly without any kind of inter- interruption into Genesis 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. Like the calling is always attached to the promise. And so, really, the story of calling for Abraham and ultimately for all of his descendants and and all of the disciples of Jesus today is not just, this is what you should do if you really love me. This is what I will do through you if you trust me. And it becomes less an exercise of fear and more of an exercise of trust, trust and faith. It becomes less an exercise of how bad am I and how faithless am I and how lazy am I and how scared am I? And it becomes really, the answer to that question becomes how God is God, how good is God really? Because God is never going to take anything from Abram or take anything from us that he's not going to give to us even greater. He, he's saying in Genesis 3 and 12, 3 and 4, like, I'm going to give you a great name and I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're actually, you're actually not leaving home so much as you're coming home for the very first time. That these, these places that you live, the, the good things and the bad things they're okay, but they're not God things. You see, that's the idea. Is I think in Christianity, we think like Christianity and following Jesus is just getting rid of the bad things, but it's also letting go of the good things too. It's letting go of the known past. It's letting go of the comforts of the world. It's letting go of the, the last thing that God gave me so that I can receive the next thing that God's wanting God's to give me because the whole vehicle for both the old and the new covenant is always go. The beginning of the old covenant, which is to Abraham, and the beginning of the new covenant, which is Jesus asking his disciples to come, and then ultimately on the Mount of Galilee to go, is always a going story. It's never really a staying story. It's always a faith walk and faith that looks like action and trust and obedience and movement. Not just to let go of the bad things to become more moral, but to trust in the good things of God. To to tell a heavenly story, to see something done and possible. So this is what I wrote it out as and continue on in the passage, Genesis 12, isn't just about Abram getting invited out of a past, but Abram getting invited into a divine future. That's what's at stake. That's what, that's what Abram has to make the decision to do. It's not, it's not the difference between cursing and awesomeness. It's the difference between humanity and a life full of God, a life full of eternity, a life full of heaven. That's what happens to us, I think, when we read that chapter. If we were to really put our name in the blank, he's saying, I'm not telling you, you know, to leave Greenville because something bad's going to happen to you. I'm telling you to leave Greenville because I want you to trust me and what you need most in your heart and what your true desire is, 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 to, have, is to have me. And Greenville without me isn't, isn't good in the first place. It's not an exercise of of discipline or an exercise of 
how, how, come, how come you're so stubborn or how come you're so fearful or how come you don't like other cultures or something like that. It's not about the culture or the place. It's about leaving your home so that you might find a real home, home in God. So what does Abram do? Really important part of the story. Verse four, Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram had 75, was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had acclimated, accumulated, excuse me, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So I won't spend a ton of time on it, but we'll begin to see this pattern. I'm not so sure Abraham was 100% obedient to the call. I mean, it's talking about he left, but he brought some of his family members, and he brought a lot of the things that, that he acquired. I don't know how you splice up your people and your father's household, but nonetheless, if it's this verse or another verse, there's a lot of verses that we're going to see where, God, where Abram doesn't exactly do what God commands him to do, stuff that will get people in the Old Testament, you know, killed, honestly, for doing less than this because of disobedience. And so it really has to sit with us, like, what do you do with the fact that, that correction of sin or correction of disobedience, and some, it's sometimes, like, what, for example, when he lies about his wife and says that he's, you know, she's, Sarai is his sister several times in the Old Testament. Like, like, like why doesn't God send a thunderbolt at that moment? And, and I kind of sat on that. I don't know what you think about that. I mean, maybe process that. It's not that God's easy on sin or he doesn't care about sin, but it really does make me think about lots of engagements with Jesus. You know, when Jesus met Zacchaeus in the tree or, you know, when, Z- when Jesus met the woman at the well, it's not that there's not like a heaviness for sin. It's just that, that there's a process by the way that he works out faith into uh, some, somebody's life. And so ultimately, Abram, all, all, all disobedience and all missteps, you know, along the path for the people and the patriarchs of God, you know, have consequence to them for sure. But it's just interesting to me that it, that it doesn't get brought up right here. So he heads out of the land. He is obedient. And that decision becomes a defining moment. And that is the way that life is, right? Sometimes it's just the smallest little step. They say that your, your opening of a cell phone even is a micro choice. And when you open up your cell phone, it leads to 250 other choices. And that choice leads to other choices. And so that decision is not just a decision. It becomes a defining moment. We'll see that Abram, what was hard to start in his faith, is now hard to stop. He continues on this path. It's not just one choice. It's life's choice to continue following. And that's going to be the pattern. He hears the voice of God and he follows it. And he hears the voice of God like Noah and he follows it. Maybe not always completely, maybe not always 100%. Sometimes he tarries, but ultimately this becomes a pattern. And that is the patriarch's faith, not to have blind faith, but to have a history with God, to know that what he's done before, he will do again. And there is a momentum and inertia that begins to take place in the story. And so he's traveling with God. Again, not just in, out of bad things into good things. As a matter of fact, he's probably in deeper trouble than he was when he started with if he's heading towards Canaan because these are pretty awful, ugly people. And in verse six, it says, Abram traveled into the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah and Shechem, which is, which is a pretty dangerous place as well. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. This is the land that God will ultimately call the promised land and the land that he's not yet told Abram where it is, but he's told Abram what it's like. And this is the land that he's promised for him and his descendants. And the Lord appears, he appears to Abram and he says to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is, this is the first time, if you're wondering, this is the first time that God is appearing to somebody uh, in, the, in the natural realm. This is the first time outside of the garden that God has, has given his presence to somebody. This is an important part because God's talking to people. He talks to Cain, he talks to Noah, but this is the first time he appears. And it's also the first time that God points his finger and identifies where the land is and shows the land. And so the land and the presence are both introduced at the same time. And then it closes up. He gives an offering, verse 8. There he went on towards the hills east of Bethel. He pitched his tent in Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. The exact same thing that it talks about the generation of, of Seth. Seth's, Seth's generation called on the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a sign of faith that's, that's, that's showing from the people of God. And so, so what is it about the appearing? Like, why would it, God just appear there and, and not before? And what would be significant if, if every detail matters in the text? Why would God's presence matter when he sees, when Abram sees the land for the first time? This is going to be an important motif for the rest of the scripture as the Israelites go into Egypt and as they come out of Egypt and as they build up the temple to uh, the tabernacle first, and then the temple to God's specs, like it all orients around the presence of God. And uh, 
and even, even the Ten Commandments. And, and, you know, following those commandments as Moses tries to enter the tent the first time, uh, he is not able to enter the tent because man's sinfulness can't come in contact with God's holiness. And, and the, the whole story needs to labor more so that the people of God can get into the presence of God. What is, what's being said here? What's being said here is that God is calling Abram out of a home, but he's calling him not just to be homeless. He does live in a tent, and that becomes an important metaphor for the way that Abram lives. He lives here, but kind of not here at the same time. He's a, he's a patriarch, but he's also an exile. And he's called out of his home in Ur, but that was never really his home in the first place. The home that God's calling him to, it speaks to his spirit and his soul, is more of a home than he's ever been to. And and, and he's calling him to this place, and the first time he sees it, he can't see it without the presence of God. What is God trying to communicate to his people? What is God trying to communicate to us when he puts his presence in the place that he's calling? He's telling us that home is not really where the heart is, or really just where we are even. Home is where Jesus is. And that the blessing and the nation and the cursing those who curse you and the blessing those who bless you, they're all just derivatives and fruit on one single tree, which is what happens in life when the presence of God is close to you? All of the things that, that, that Abraham has promised and all the things that God is, is telling Abraham will happen, all of them are only downhill. They're only, they're only effects of the ultimate cause of what he's really getting at. He's, he's saying that, that Eden that you desire, the blessing that you long for, the, the thing that's going to give you life, it's not just a zip code. It's a proximity to me. It is a place with me. It is a home with me. It is my presence, Abram. It is my presence, Abram. It is my presence, New Testament church. It is my presence that brings the life. It is not the organization or the plan or the flag or the blessings or the laws and all those things will come out as natural fruit does of things that are alive. But the life, the hope, the joy is in the presence of God. And Abram shouldn't forget this. I mean, we can't forget this. This is the very, you know, first impressions are everything. The first time you see the first time he's ever going to remember seeing that land, he'll always connect it to the presence of God, is that you don't want the land without my presence because the land isn't even the land without my presence. You need my presence, and it's my presence that ultimately is going to make functional the blessing and the promise that I have. And so as you continue, there is no heaven without me. There is no promise without me. There's no blessing without me. And so we need to keep the question mark here, and it is a question, not a proclamation, of how did the presence get offered to Abram is a question we need to ask because the last time we saw the presence, it was behind swinging cherubim and swords. We could not get into the presence. And so we're, we're, we're reading that as a Bible reader. What did it cost for us to get back into the presence of God? And how do we approach the presence of God in the way that it's designed that we might see the fullness of being a blessing to the nations and receiving the blessing? And so this story to me, this, this narrative in Abram's life and in the Bible is about going. It is about leaving home. And it's not really because home's a bad place or a good place. It's just, a, it's just a place that we trust more than God. And it's a place that we're satisfied to be without God really in it. And we're always, always, always being called out of home. That is the nature of faith to go somewhere. We have to leave somewhere. And that requires risk. It requires, you know, a kind of trust. And, and here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. Um, because obviously God's not against family and he's not against nations. He's telling Abram he wants to build one. But the, the funny thing is, is that the community, the home that, that we live in, that nurtures us, that, that welcomes us, that builds us up, can call us up into who we're supposed to be in health, but it can also tend to hold us, hold us back and, and hold us down in the same way. I think... Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's funny to me, like, uh, I, uh, so when I came to the Lord, I noticed Paul Garrigan had a teen study Bible on the way into church this morning, and I remembered that Bible, because that was the exact same Bible that I was reading in 1 Corinthians 13, when I remember first saying I wanted to trust Jesus and follow him. I was just in a front yard reading the book, and I knew that what was being spoken about to my spirit in that book was something more than I had, and I was willing to leave. I mean, I was willing to, to, to give it all up, and that didn't mean I just, like, moved or, like, told my mom that I was going to pack my sleeping bag and leave the house. But it did mean leaving, didn't it? I mean, many of you are in this room, and maybe you brought up in a Christian household, or maybe not, but 
following Jesus does have costs and it does mean closed doors. I mean, Jesus says that to follow him is to hate our mother and brother and sister and to uh, not have a place to hold our head and to, you know, and to not have a home, to be itinerant, to live in tents, so to speak. I mean, that is the call of being a Christian. And so I remember like, you know, I, I would go to the family gatherings. I still do. I love my people. I'm among my people. I'm, I belong with my family. Uh, but what God was doing was taking my home out of that place and putting it in him. And many of us have that experience is that we are still with people and we're not just so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good and we don't just not talk to people, you know, uh, if we follow Jesus. But the home factor is a little bit different. But what's really interesting, though, to me, is that oftentimes it's like the thing that God brings us to in the next season of our life when we leave home to go to another place becomes a new home. And it's ironic because the very thing that you left to get to, uh, now you have arrived at a place that's hard to leave again. And sometimes we leave our first home to just make another one, and we never actually keep our home in Jesus. I don't know if you've experienced this before. It's kind of like, um, you know, when we go into testimony time and we start talking about like how we follow Jesus and the things that God has changed in us and the ways that he is moving us, we always have to see, search back to like old stories. Like that really convicts me to think about that. Like I know my story at one time was about going, but I'm not so sure I could sit here and tell you my story continues to be about going. And that's why you're going to see continuing these stories, the episodes of Abraham always come with sacrifices. You realize sacrifices are not just the worst parts of Abraham's flock. Sacrifices are the first and the best parts of Abraham's flock. And I think what the scripture is trying to explain to us is that every season that we step into in a new place, if there isn't an offering of the best thing we received from that change, then we're likely to make the new place a home just as much as the old place, and we've not actually traveled anywhere in the first place. It's just funny to me that a lot of times, you know, like I've experienced in Christian community, it's like we are on this zealous pursuit of leaving where we are, and it's so black and white where we're coming from that we don't want to be back there, but then we come into the new place, and it's like the same energy that is used to call up believers and call up disciples of Jesus into following with, with pursuit and to passion actually becomes the ceiling for the next step. And the church becomes about how can we keep things safe, and how can we keep things the same, and how can we keep things not too crazy or, or, or not too, you know, passionate. And the very same things that, that the community is used to lift people up into uh, also tends to, to, to hold people back. And we become a, a people of the echoes as opposed to people of the voice. People that listen to one another more than we listen to God. I remember a, a family member of mine um, had, had three daughters um, and, uh, and they were all right in the same age and they all grew up at the same time and they're all teenagers and, and raising teenagers is just super tough. I'm certain to f- figure out I should get a book on it or something. But anyways, um, there were three teenagers and, and one of them um, was just had a really hard time and just really rough and, and just with the school and the friends and was not doing good. And this, this parent of my family member was just in tears and in that surrender place, like the thing with the kidneys, just like, God, I don't know what to do. I have nothing to offer. I just give this up to you. I mean, what a sweet spot to be. I'm leaving my home. I don't have even the good things and the bad things. I'll give it up because they're not stable in the first place. And so the only real home is in you and I'm trusting you. And, and the voice of, of the spirit to that person was, I don't just want you to give me that daughter. I want you to give me the other daughters too. I want you to give me the good things in life, the things that are, that are going well. And, and this is, I think, what the problem can, can sometimes be is that we do, speaking to somebody this week, like we belong with one another, but our home is always with God. Our home, our home is always with Jesus Christ. And so, you know, the kingdom of God is a lot about relationships, but it's also a lot about hellos and goodbyes. Because the minute that we, that we think that the people that are to the left and the right of us are with us always and that that is our home is the minute that we lose our home in Jesus, our, our real home, our true home, the one that we are going to find righteousness, peace, and joy is only in Jesus. And so this is what I think. This is, and I'll get to the intentional question. This is what I think it, it brings us to. Is Jesus speaks, I think, to all this in his, you know, after the Sermon on the Mount, as he speaks to the idea of, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, and then in terms of practical equipping after, he speaks about the significance of prayer. And most specifically, Jesus makes a huge harping emphasis on the teaching of secret place prayer or individual prayer. He says it's really important that we're going to pray in community. It's really important that we process and discuss in community. It's really important that we teach and equip and, 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 and all that kind of thing. And what you don't want to do is just pray really long-winded prayers and go on and on and on. Really, the measurement of the quality of the prayer is the heart 
of praying to your Father in heaven. So what he says to you and me in these moments like this, in terms of God's always calling us to live a life of going, is to, he says, close the door, go into your room, and speak to your Father who is in heaven. He says, he says at some point, Christianity is about family, it is about community, but at some point, it's also about consecration. And so, so the life of the believer is, 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 is nothing. It, ha- it, doesn't, it doesn't stem back into its heritage if it doesn't at some point detach itself into the secret place. Like Christianity is about community, but it's also about, it is also about secret place. And, and so he's saying, you're going to go into your room and you're going to pray to your Father in heaven. I want, the, I want to put the Lord's Prayer up and just have you fix your eyes on it because I'll send us out with a bit of, a, bit of an exercise today as, as we kind of go and respond to this text. But, but if you look at this prayer... Our Father, right, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as is in heaven. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not hard to see the connection between the promise of Abraham and the prayer of Jesus. What the prayer of Jesus is doing is tying us back to the original vision, to what God is doing. How can you have a nation that's blessed if it's not integrated into the kingdom of God? And how are you blessed if you're not giving your daily bread from God's hand himself and not from your paycheck? How are you, how are you learning to be a blessing and blessing those who bless you and curse those that curse you, you know, that God is doing that on your behalf if God's not the one that protects you, if you have to protect yourself? And so what is Jesus doing when he tells his disciples how to pray? He's He's mapping them back onto the original Genesis 12 promise. He's saying, pray like this. In the morning, at 7 o'clock in the morning, I want you to pray. And when you pray with your eyes open, you're actually going to see, you're going to see the vision illuminate all over your life. And so we sit around and we're like, I wonder what God's calling me to do. I mean, he, I don't think he's calling me to Iraq, but I wonder what he's calling you to do. And, and what he's saying is that he has called you. And all you're, you're actually required to do is not to just get there automatically, but just take a step and take a step with my presence. And so at 12 o'clock, you might pray. And all of a sudden, when you pray, that religious kind of, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. You just like run it through like Sunday school. You're going to see somebody on the street or in your workplace. And you're going to see a friend or a text or a post on social media. And now that prayer, which was just about running through, you know, the the pattern now becomes a new way of looking at life to take the next step and the next step. And I don't know where it is biblically speaking, but Kristen Walker always says, God goes with those who go. And I think that is in a sense, what the, what the passage is saying is that, is that those prayers and that, and that request, that supplication to God puts us from the place of passivity into action. And I don't know about you, I have a lot of regrets in my life, but most of the regrets in my life do not orient around the things that I do. They orient around the things I don't do or waited too long to do. Because the thing about going is that even if it doesn't work out the way that you thought that it would, it always, it always orients hopefully around obedience. And obedience is always a great, its own reward in, in, in Jesus. It's always rewarded. And so as we walk and as we, as we take steps, we, you know, we fail maybe. And then, but we still learn something and we still meet somebody. And so maybe that's just what the passage is saying is you don't have to figure out to get a passport to go to Iraq, but maybe get a travel book or maybe ask a mentor out or maybe do research or maybe just take the next step and see where that leads you next. And so that's my, that's my thought to you today is in the intentional question is like the, the walk of faith is going. The new covenant and the old covenant are both begun in the soil of going. They're both started by leaving home and, and, no, and nobody changes, nobody grows, nobody, nobody becomes more like Jesus by staying home. What it takes, what it ultimately implies, and what this chapter is getting out of the way, very first things first, if you're not a person who's willing to leave home, you're not a person who's willing to follow Jesus. You're not a person who's willing to make your home in Jesus. And so the process isn't just looking for the bad things in life. It's looking for all the things in life that are meaning more to us than Jesus and leaving them and trusting, and trusting the voice. And so where are you going? What are you, what are you doing that might fail? What are you doing? Where, 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 how are you being led to, to test the borders of your understanding? Where are you being led to learn something new that you don't know yet? That's the process, even psychologically, I suppose, but for sure by faith of what it means to be transformed in the image of Christ. If we're continually living in the old spot and not making the sacrifices of our first and our best and leaving our last home to get to the next place, we are not following in the lineage towards the great nation and the great name and the people that will bless others that that bless others and so forth. So if you were to pray the Father's Prayer at 7 in the morning tomorrow and 12 in the afternoon and 6 o'clock at night with your eyes open, where would it lead you? 
what's, what's an old home that was given you to you by God? I mean, Isaac was given to Abraham. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it's old. It's just that it was the last thing and he's ready for you to give it so that you might take the next thing and that we wouldn't be the kinds of people that just tell old stories, that we tell now stories, that our first faith is our forever faith and we always become a people that are living in tents and never you know, so established that the movement becomes a museum and we just get stuck and we aren't the people of faith anymore. We're the people that had faith, but now we're cool. We're, we're just trying to help other people. You know, the other people get to have faith or whatever. Ah, we're never home. We're always following the presence into the next place because, because home is not where the heart is. Home is where the presence of God is. Home is where his calling is. And that's the best home that we'll ever have. It's the one that we'll give up all the other homes to have. I wanna invite the uh, band to come forward um, as, we, uh, as we respond this morning. And, uh, and I'll invite you to stand. Um, I would love um, for us to, do, to spend this time, I always invite us to respond in prayer as we, as we do worship. Um, to maybe set aside for some listening this morning. I think that that would be appropriate. I love that the call of God doesn't happen at some temple. It just happens out in the wilderness. And, you know, it could happen. That's the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. It, it just permeates all the walls. And it can happen here or in your car or anywhere else. Um, but it just invokes a yieldedness and an openness to maybe open the idea that God is calling us to give up something good to receive what's in his hand. And so I, wanna tr- I, wanna, I just want to say this last thing as we close in prayer this morning, but um, the calling is always attached to the promise, and the exercise of faith is not about God. Prove to me what a great Christian I am because I'll do it all and give it all up. But show me what it is that you're doing in my life and really all of life by you doing something. You, you're going to be the one that needs to do it. And so this invitation is not an invitation to fear. It's actually an invitation into grace of actually finding home for the very first time. And, and this would become a pattern of us for us as sojourners, as tent makers, as people that, that are here for a short time. And we give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but we give to God what's God's. If he speaks that to your heart, if he's put a word into your spirit, if you trust him, you'll never regret the going never regret the going. You will regret the waiting. You'll never regret the going. And so if he calls you to go in the small things and the big things, just to go. And so uh, spirit, we just, we come before this text and don't just read it as a fly on the wall, but as an invitation to a mirror and ultimately to a window. And so um, we know that your, your voice has always said to go. It's always been a going voice. It's always commanded your people and your families time and time again. We are stairs and you send us to go. And so, God, um, it's my heart just as the person presenting this text today and um, as we gather around in this circle, not in rows, to make our community about going, to make it about uncomfort when it needs to be and discomfort, knowing that the only true comfort is in you. And so would you put that in our spirit? I pray that this week as we seek you at different times of the day, that we are available to your guidance and your prompting, that we don't hold our comfort uh, as the navigational compass for where to go. We, rather, we use your, your spirit. We, use, you, we rely on your word and we rely on um, ultimately your truth to guide us. And we know that that is where we'll find home in the first place. So we thank you for not leaving us alone, for pursuing us and for calling us into real home with you. We love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.